Well, we are indeed continuing on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as you may recall, if you were here last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6 really detailed how this wall was miraculously completed in 52 days. Uh, We remember they began the wall and then they had a lot of hardship and trial and enemies surrounding them, attacking them. And then what we saw in last week's sermon in chapter 6 is is that the, the enemies went directly after Nehemiah himself and how God uh, miraculously brought them through that and through the help of their God, that wall was completed in 52 days, something that uh, really made their enemies shudder when they realized that. Well, we're go- today we're going to skip chapter 7. And the reason we're going to skip chapter 7 is because if you look at chapter 7, the bulk of it from essentially verses 6 through 73 has basically been lifted from Ezra chapter 2. So we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, and Ezra chapter 2 listed all of the returnees, the exiles that have returned. And and that's what the bulk of chapter 7 is, is that same list again. But I do want to mention, before we look at chapter 8, Uh, just a few important things that we find in chapter 7. One of them is that the doors are finally hung. Uh, You remember how in chapter 6 they had built the entire wall, including the gates, but the doors had not yet been hung. And that's why those enemies became desperate, because they realized that now was the chance, if they were going to have any chance of attacking successfully before the, the, the doors were hung and barred and guarded, that was the time. Well, by this time now in chapter 7, the doors have been hung. They're open for part of the day, and then they're shut, and they're barred shut. And there are gatekeepers and singers and Levites that are appointed. And then we also see, which kind of brings us full circle as well, that Hanani, uh, which was, remember, Nehemiah's brother. If you recall way back when Nehemiah in chapter 1 is told about the destruction that happens in Jerusalem, that the the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, that was his brother, Hanani, that goes and and tells him that when he's in the citadel in Susa. And we see here in chapter 7 that that his brother, who is a God-fearing man, he says, is essentially put in charge there in Jerusalem. If Nehemiah is the governor, then Hanani looks like might be something like a mayor of sorts. So we see here that at the end of chapter 7, that all is secure, that everything has been appointed, the, the doors have been hung, the doors have been barred, and, and there is a security that we find. But the task is really only half finished. Some see the book of Nehemiah, when they look at it, they see it as a book of leadership, that really the book of Nehemiah, that's what it's about, is it teaches godly leadership principles, and, and it does do that. But that's not all it is. Some see that the book of Nehemiah is a book really about the building of a wall. And it does portray that, but that's not all it is. We see that the wall is completed, and yet there's still many chapters to go. And that's because the book of Nehemiah is more about the building up of the people of Israel than it is about the building of a wall. The wall plays a part in that. But the real rebuilding begins in the hearts 
of the people of Israel, which begins our text this morning, which is Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along. I'm actually going to begin by reading the last part of the last verse of chapter 7. This is Nehemiah chapter 8. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Haliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast in the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. 
And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the wall was finished, and the wall was finished, we read in chapter 6, at the end of the month of Elul, which is what we would consider late September. Again, that's was one of the most amazing things about the building of that wall is they built it during those hot summer months when it would have been the hardest to build the wall. And as we read at the end of chapter 7, what I read first, it says, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now the seventh month was the month of Tishri, and it was a very important month for the people of Israel. That month was a month where they had three very significant celebrations. The first one is the one that we see here mainly described in our text. It was called the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. It was really good that we had Jim here today on trumpet because we could reenact that day today. We would know it today by Rosh Hashanah, that same feast. And then the second one that happened on the 10th day was called the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. And today we would know that as Yom Kippur. And then the third major celebration happened on days 15 through 22nd, and that was the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, which we also see described here in the passage. So the wall was, by God's grace, completed just days before this important month rolled around where these celebrations were to occur. And as Nehemiah points out, the people had, once the wall was built, they had gone back to their respective towns. But what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that all of the people then gather as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, one of the things that preachers have the privilege of doing when they're going through a book or books of the Bible is really looking at them very closely and looking at the structure of the books and seeing if patterns emerge or parallel passages emerge from these texts. And, And as We've said a number of times, Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one account. We have them split up in our Bibles. But in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they were one. And so when we look at these two books, we see, and I just want to point this out because this to me was really interesting this week, we see a really neat parallel occur in both Ezra chapters 2 and 3, and Nehemiah chapters 7 and 8. So if you want to put your finger kind of here at Nehemiah chapter 8 and then flip back to Ezra chapter 2 so that you can kind of look back and forth at both of these sections, it's very interesting. Again, remember that this is one account. And so as one account, you now have this repetition that occurs. 
In Ezra chapter 2, again, you have that list of the returning exiles. And then here in Nehemiah chapter 7, again, that list is repeated. And interestingly, then in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, and right here at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, both of them say that when the seventh month arrived, the people of Israel, Ezra 3.1 says the children of Israel, were in their towns or went back to their towns. That same phrase is repeated immediately after that list. And then in Ezra 3.1 and in Nehemiah 8.1, both of them again say the exact same phrase, which is only found, I believe, in these two sections right here in the whole of the Bible. It says, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So both sections, you find them retreating to their towns and then in the seventh month, gathering together as one man. Ezra chapter three, it focuses on two leaders, Jeshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And in Nehemiah chapter eight, you have respectively the same thing. You have Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor. So you have again this parallel account. Ezra chapter 3 and Nehemiah 8 both focus in their own way on the law of Moses. Ezra chapter 3 and Nehemiah 8, they both have the people keeping the feast of booths. Ezra 3 and Nehemiah 8, interestingly, both talk about the people weeping and rejoicing. Those themes are repeated. And so we could see these as exactly parallel accounts, but there is one huge difference. And the difference, again, highlights God's graciousness to his people. Because in Ezra chapter 3, the exiles, that list, had just returned. And what did they return to? Yes, they returned to Jerusalem, but they returned to a city that was a smoldering ruin. In Ezra 3, there was no temple. There wasn't even a foundation to a temple that had been laid yet. There was certainly no wall. Everything was a pile of rubble. Still left there, the destruction from the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in Ezra 3, 3, that what the people did when they all gathered together as one man is they have this altar set up. There is no temple yet. So an altar is set up in the middle of the rubble, basically out in the open. Imagine there's no temple, there's no wall. They set up this altar in the middle of smoldering ruins. And what we see there is this quote, fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. So as they all gather together to worship God and set up this altar, they're all afraid because there is no security. They're wide open and they're surrounded by the same enemies that they have now. Only now, look at the very different scenario. The temple is now complete. The wall is now complete. The doors have been hung the doors are barred, and there is no more fear from the people of the land. That statement is absent. Security abounds now. And so the people gather together as one man to worship God, the God who has brought them to this place. We know the exact date on which these people gathered together to celebrate. It was October the 8th. 
445 B.C. And we see this difference, this difference of how they feel secure, because they gather together, we see here in the text, not in a bunch of rubble out in the open, but they gather together in the square before the water gate. Here we have a description of the wall that they're now standing next to, this wall that is offering them this protection, this symbol of strength and protection. And what we see next throughout chapter 8 is a profound depiction of a worship service, the elements of which are still used in churches all over the world and still used here at Meadowcroft to this day. Notice, first of all, in this worship service, who it is who gathers together. It says that it was all the people. And again, this is people from all over the realm of Judah that have gone to their respective towns and and have now gathered together in the city, in the square, by the great wall that has just been built. And this crowd of people, it would have included, as we saw with the building of the wall, all different types of people. People with all types of skills and talents and backgrounds. It would have included professional people and it would have included manual laborers and artists, goldsmiths. They all would have gathered together as one. Verse 3 specifies that this crowd included men and women. And it also included, you see this quote, all who could understand what they heard. Now scholars are virtually united on this, that what that phrase means is that children were there, that children were there with the men and the women, and that the only children that weren't there present were the ones who weren't old enough to understand the words that were being read, which means that it would have been infants and toddlers that would have been somewhere else, presumably. Men and women and children, all from different backgrounds and areas, gather as one man. In the New Testament, Paul, I think, takes this idea and describes the church as one body. And so we see the same thing, gathering together. We see this communal gathering actually commanded in the book of Deuteronomy, which is part of the law of Moses that was read, Deuteronomy 31. Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, again, here we are, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And so that's one of the reasons why, not that we go directly to this text in Nehemiah, but we see throughout church history that there is a pattern of parents and children gathering together as one in a worship service to worship together. It's become somewhat fashionable these days in American churches that once a certain part of the service begins, maybe even at the beginning of the service, that teens, youth, high schoolers, junior hires, whatever, are all split up and sent away to their very own uh, custom worship services. 
that are designed just for them, away from the adults, where they don't have to be with everybody else, and they can have fun. And what we see here is that's not the way that Israel operated. Everybody gathered together. And at Meadowcroft, we believe it's extremely important for our children to be in the service with us as one body. That even if our children don't understand every single thing that is read or said from the pulpit, that they are seeing their parents lift up their voices to God. That they're seeing their parents and other adults bow their heads to this God. That they're not shipped off into their own individual services. Notice, secondly here, why they are gathered together. It's interesting that the people come and they tell Ezra the scribe, bring out the book. Bring out this book of the law. It's not Ezra that brings it out. He doesn't bring it out initially and command everyone to be gathered to him. They come to him. The people are yearning for this. Just as a, a bit of a side note, remember that Ezra has been there now for 13 years. He arrived 13 years before Nehemiah came. And why did Ezra go? If you think back, Ezra came because he said he felt a burden on his heart. He felt a burden to go to, to Israel and to teach and instruct the people in the law. He was a man who was, knew God's word and he wanted to pass that on. And what I find interesting here and uh, could be what's going on here is that Ezra is now seeing the fruit of 13 years of labor. It hasn't been easy. We've seen many times throughout that the people of Israel continue to fall back into sin. But Ezra has been there faithfully for 13 years teaching the law of God to the people. And now he's seeing that these people are yearning for him to bring out the law and teach it to them. And notice here the absolute reverence that is shown in this worship service. The reverence that is given to this book, a book. Ezra, first of all, stands on what appears to be a huge wooden platform. The Hebrew word that we have translated here, platform, is actually the word for tower. So Ezra stands on something that is described as being a tower. And as I read this, I just was so convicted that we ought to do that here. That, that the deacons and the property guys ought to build a tower for me here. So that when I preach, I'm standing up at the ceiling of this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we do see Ezra. He walks up to this tower. And we do see in churches, don't we? That the pulpit is elevated. It's elevated here a little bit. That when you walk up to the pulpit to preach God's word, it, we see it here. And we see here 13 men, six on one side and seven on the other, stand next to him as he carries this book up to the platform. And you get to see them standing there in this kind of solemnity, waiting for the word to be read. And it's interesting, if you just look at all the names of these men, they were the names, you can go back and find them, they were there in the building of the wall, every one of these men. Before Ezra begins reading the book, notice that he, he opens the book and all of the people stand 
And before he begins reading from the book, he prays and he blesses the Lord, the great God, in his prayer. And look how all the people answer, amen, amen, and they lift up their hands to heaven. And then after this prayer and they lift their hands, all of the people bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all of this even before he begins reading from this book. Have you ever seen a book receive such honor as we see in this passage? I remember one year, one Christmas, my parents and I and a girl that I was dating at the time, we went to uh, see Handel's Messiah uh, performed at the Meyerhoff Symphony in Baltimore. It was an amazing performance and uh, I still remember it vividly. And I remember after the performance was over, the conductor began pointing to different performers that night. And first he kind of motioned to the orchestra in general. And everyone gave a, a rousing applause. And, and then he pointed out specific soloists who had sung particular parts. And, and the crowd's applause got even louder. And then the whole crowd erupted into what I thought would be the loudest applause of the night when he turned and motioned for the choir to stand up. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah performed, you know that the choir is the one that really steals the show. And I thought the applause couldn't get any louder, except that at the very end, the conductor held up the music score. And when everyone saw what Handel had written, and that that's what we had just heard performed, the applause got its loudest, uh, thanking and in a sense just applauding God for this man Handel who he had gifted. And it was amazing because I realized in that moment that, that even though most people there probably didn't realize what they were doing, I realized that really all of this applause was, was really for God, for gifting everyone who was involved in this entire thing. Well, Ezra began reading. And what we see here is that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. During the reading of the book of the law, all the ears were locked in, listening with rapt attention to what was being said. And this was not a 10-minute reading. This was a six-hour sermon. Ezra began in early morning and he went until midday. Why? Why was such honor given to this book? Why were all of the ears so attentive for six hours to what was being read? Were they that attentive because it was Ezra reading? Were they there, all there, with rapt attention for six hours because they couldn't wait to hear what Ezra had to say? Well, of course, it was Ezra who did the reading. So in one sense, they were there to hear Ezra read. But that wasn't ultimately who they were there to hear from. Well, who was it then? Was it Moses? Is that who they were there to hear from? After all, this was the book of Moses. Moses did write the Pentateuch. He was the one that penned it. And perhaps Moses, being a, 
a great figure of history. Maybe they were there and gave that much honor and that much attention because they couldn't wait to hear what their ancestor Moses had written. Well, of course, in one sense, they were there to hear what Moses had written because he did write it. But that wasn't ultimately who they were there to hear from. Because what our passage says is that they were there to hear from the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. See, ultimately, the reason they gave such honor and such attention to this book is because they knew that the one who ultimately was speaking to them was the Lord God Almighty. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture. 2 Peter, Peter says, Look, we saw the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured on the mount. We were there. We saw His glory. And then Peter says, But there's something even more glorious than that. As glorious as that was, he says, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When they gathered together that day, they understood that it was God who was speaking to them. And just to show you how powerful this understanding that that the Old Testament of that day was the words of God Almighty, we see that Jesus, when He is God incarnate, walking on this earth, Jesus who anything he would have said would have been said by God. When he is confronted by Satan, he turns to Satan and says, Satan, it is written. And he quotes from the word of God. That is high, high honor given to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, do you really believe that this book is the word of God. Do you really believe it? And if so, do you live as though you believe it? Because you see here in this text that there is an insatiable hunger that we see in Nehemiah 8 to receive the word of God. And look at what happens in verse 13. After this worship service ends, the heads of the Father's houses continue to study the Word. And as I asked myself that same question, and here I am a pastor. I'm a pastor whose job it is to treat this book as the Word of God. I do it every week. And yet, as I ask myself, do I really treat it all the time as the Word of God? And I thought about all the times that I read a modern theology book, some book written by some guy in the last five years, and he's making a case for something, maybe it's about how to 
uh, worship at a church or how a worship service should be set up or, or something like that. And as I'm reading his argument, he quotes Scripture. He says, as it says, in, and he begins to quote Scripture, I can't tell you how many times I say to myself, oh, I know what that says, and I skip over the Scripture to continue reading his argument. And so the only words that I'm skipping in this book are the only words that came directly from God himself. See, imagine, if you will, that you're on the front lines of a war. Imagine that you're, you're in World War I, you're, you're fighting in the trenches, those horrible, muddy trenches, those trenches full of death. And imagine that you're wondering each day if you're going to make it out alive. And one day you get a letter from home. How do you treat that letter from home? Do you immediately drop it in the mud next to you and don't bother opening up the envelope? Do you open it up and skim it once and then throw it away? Or do you find a secluded spot, open it up, and read every word as if it was the last word you would ever read? Do you pour over it and meditate and think about what each word means? And do you pull it out day after day and read it again and again and again and focus on every word and think about what it's being said and carry it around in your back pocket every day because it's the most precious thing you have? St. Augustine said the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. Christian, we are on a journey. This world is not our home. And what we have in the Bible are God's letters from home to us to strengthen us, to challenge us, to encourage us, and to be our light until we reach home. Notice that this wasn't just six hours of reading. What we see here really is a description of what we call today expository preaching. What I'm doing right now. Opening up God's word, reading it, and then explaining it as I have studied it. Remember those Levites. The Levites, if you go back and you think back when Ezra was making his trip here and he began counting up the people who were there and adding up who was coming with him, and he realized no Levites had joined. And he paused and he stopped and it was a big deal. And they prayed and they fasted and then he sent someone over to gather up as many Levites as he could get and bring them. Well, we see here the Levites. We see them serving here. As Ezra is reading, some of these Levites, we find this in verses 7 and 8, are what the Scripture says here is giving the sense of what's been read. They are expounding upon and explaining what Ezra has just read. And so we see this going on. The people are remaining where they are, and the Scripture then is read clearly, and then the Levites are giving the sense of what was read. It is, again, a picture of expository preaching. Go back to our confession of faith. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? 
The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word. An effectual means of convincing, converting sinners, and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And what we see all throughout the Bible, not only here, but elsewhere all throughout is the Word of God is preached is preached to God's people. We see Moses preach. We see the prophets preach. We see Jesus preach. We see Peter preach. We see Paul preach. And then when Paul is ready to depart this earth, he knows that his departure is near. He's going to be killed, most likely, which he is. He writes a letter to Timothy, his student, And he says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you by the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that's what we see here is this preaching is going on. And what is the result of this preaching? All of the people begin weeping. All of the people begin weeping. Why? Well, if we go back to Ezra chapter 3, again, that parallel passage, we see that the people weep there. Why do they weep there? Well, remember, they weep right after this foundation is built. And they look at this foundation and they realize that the foundation of this new temple is nowhere near what the foundation of Solomon's temple was like. Some of the people, the people who hadn't seen Solomon's temple, are rejoicing that a foundation's been laid. After all, before that there was nothing. But the people who had seen the former glory, the older people, the people who had been there to see Solomon's temple when it was in all its glory, they were the ones who were weeping at the sight of this new foundation. And as I mentioned in that sermon, I think it was more than just, oh, what we had before was so much better. I think what caused a lot of the weeping the first time was also the realization that it was their sin that had caused the destruction of Solomon's temple. It was a direct result. God had told them, if you continue to sin, this place will be destroyed. And God did. But why are they weeping now? I mean, after all, everything is fixed, right? The foundation's been laid. The temple has been built. Now the walls have been built. Everything is fine. There is no more fear. No more fear of the peoples of the land. So why are they weeping? Well, I believe it's for the same reason as before because yes the people have the temple they have the walls they have the gates they have the door they have the guards in that sense they have security and yet in the presence of a holy god they stand condemned romans chapter 3 verses 19 to 20 says now we know That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, whatever material blessings they had, and they had a lot, what they realized in that moment when they heard the law of God read is that they are still sinners. And the sin that was exposed by the law of God in Moses' day is the sin that was exposed in this day as Ezra read the law. And Nehemiah reminds them of God's holiness three times. In verse 9 and verse 10 and in verse 11, the people are told, this day is holy to the Lord your God. God, they're reminded, is the holy one before whom sinners are condemned. And yet, curiously enough, three times immediately after being told that this day is holy to the Lord your God, in verse 9 and verse 10 and in verse 11, the people are, however, told not to mourn or grieve which doesn't really make much sense. Because if you're a bunch of sinners and you've had the law of God read to you and you realize that you've broken God's law and that you are condemned, why would you not weep? Well, the reason is given in verse 10. In verse 10, we see, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Hebrew word here for strength, it means mountain stronghold. It means place of refuge. It means fortress. It's interesting that that's what's said when here they are standing next to what they may have perceived was their stronghold. As they're standing next to this wall and and feeling very much uh, able to get together without fear and have this six-hour worship service, they are reminded that it is not the wall that is their strength. It's not the wall that is their stronghold or their fortress. Because even though they are safe, in a sense, by the wall, they are safe only from the peoples of the land. But no wall No temple, no external fortress can keep anyone safe from the holiness of God. And so they wept. They wept because of their sin. In the face of the holiness of God, that wall that they were standing next to provided no such refuge. And so they were reminded, lest they forget, of where their refuge truly lay. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your refuge. The joy of the Lord is your fortress and your stronghold. What does that phrase, the joy of the Lord, mean? Because you can understand that one of two ways. You can kind of translate the joy of the Lord to mean the joy that God's people have over him. The joy that God's people express over the Lord. But it could also mean, and I believe in this context does mean, the joy that God has over his people. I think in this context, when they are confronted by the law of God, 
such that it makes them weep. The only thing that could be a refuge for them is God's joy for his people. They are about to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a two-week celebration, or a week celebration, rather, that really celebrated God's grace. Because the Feast of Booths remembered back when they were slaves in Egypt, completely captive to slavery and without hope, that it was God's joy over his people that caused him to remember them and send a deliverer and bring them out of slavery. Who were these people? These people there in Nehemiah's time. Well, they too had been exiles. They too had no hope except for God's sovereign mercy. They too were in captivity in Babylon. And here they were, standing in Jerusalem, standing before a temple, standing before a rebuilt wall, not because of anything that they had done but solely and totally by the grace of God. Christian, does God really rejoice and have joy over his people? It sounds crazy. And yet we see in Scripture, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The Lord your God, Jerusalem, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. One scholar says this. What else could this meeting at the water gate signify to the Jews but that God had surely loved them despite their sinfulness and waywardness? The judgment of exile was fully deserved, but God remembered his covenant. The question, and I'll close with this, is how? See, that's the question. How can a holy God, who cannot turn a blind eye to sin, how can a holy God who must punish sin rejoice over sinners? Well, interestingly and conspicuously, our passage details only two of the great celebrations that happen in the month of Tishri. We see the Feast of Trumpets, where the Word of God is read and preached, and then we see them celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. But that third great day, which isn't talked about, but which fell between those two, is the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, that was the day that the high priest 
and only the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, and there were three animals used that day. The first was a lamb without blemish, a male lamb who was slaughtered, its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in order to pay for the sins of the high priest. The second animal was a male goat who was also slaughtered, its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in order to pay for all of the sins of the people. And the third animal that was used was a goat that was left alive. It was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat, confess all the sins of the people on that goat and set it free so that it would go far out into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people away from them. Brothers and sisters, that day, that day of atonement that fell between the reading of the law that condemned and the feast of booze where they celebrated, that day pointed forward to the day that our Lord Jesus Christ would fulfill every single role in that celebration. The Lord Jesus was our high priest who did not have to sacrifice for his own sin, and yet he was also the lamb who was shed. He was also the scapegoat who carried our sins as far as the east is from the west. I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, this morning rejoice because your God rejoiced over you. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for what Jesus did. We're so thankful that his joy sent him to the cross. His joy over us. And Father, we're so grateful that now we can come before you. And we can celebrate that our strength is your joy. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us now in that. In Jesus' name, amen.